0: Today's episode of The Letterboxd Show is brought to you by our friends over at LG who have just recently launched their shiny new HQ page on Letterboxd. You can follow their HQ page to keep up with their recommendations on what you should be watching on an LG OLED and tips on how to best set up your TV. Browse Letterboxd's Instagram page to enter our contest to win your own LG OLED TV And I'll tell you what, maybe your old pal Slim is in that very video. Who can say? I just searched reviews that mention LG OLED TVs, and it's always great to see what people are watching on them. Monica watched Mad Max Fury Road and wrote, so good on the new LG 4K OLED TV. And Michael watched Coco and said, it's the gold standard for 4K HDR showcase. On my new LG OLED TV, the colors and visuals are stunning, quote, end quote. You can follow LG OLED Movie Club on Letterboxd at letterbox.com slash LG OLED. And now, on with the show.
1: Hey all you chaotic bisexuals, this is Mitchell Beaupre and you're listening to a very special episode of The Letterboxd Show in which I speak to director Ira Sachs about his new film Passages, playing in theaters now worldwide from Mubi. This delicious love triangle follows Tomás, a narcissistic filmmaker whose marriage to Martin hits the rocks when Tomás starts up an affair with a god. Inspired by the works of Rainer Werner Fassbender and Eric Romare, Sachs and his frequent co-writer Mauricio Zacharias had the desire to make a quote, very horny film. And I can personally attest that they definitely succeeded. With that, Passages is my personal favorite film of the year so far, and it's without question the horniest. Presenting a vivid understanding of the highs and lows of maintaining trust and passion in relationships in the modern age with masterful performances from Franz Rogowski, Ben Whishaw, and Adele X But Mitchell, I haven't seen passages yet. Surely I can't listen to this hour-long podcast about it. Don't worry, a hair on your head, concerned citizen I just made up. This convo is designed to give you a taste of what you can expect from the film, courtesy of a deep dive into some of Sack's personal favorites, including William Wyler's Dodsworth, Chantal Ackerman's transcendent J2ELL, Lucino Visconti's The Innocent, and Frank Riplo's Taxi Zoom Khloh. A quick note for listeners, this interview was conducted as the WGA and SAG-AFTRA unions are on strike for better working conditions and fair compensation for their work. Passages was an entirely independent production shot in Europe with European actors, and it's being released by an independent distributor that isn't in the AMPTP and therefore is not a struck company. Rest assured, we would never ask anyone to cross a picket line. So settle in as Sax tells me about how the films he loves are like family to him. The MPA's decision to give Passages an NC-17 rating. Ridiculous, controversial, heated, get rid of the MPA. And does Ira at one point even suggest that I'm just so darn brilliant that I should be the film critic for the New York Times? You're just going to have to listen and find out, friends. Ira, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me to speak about Passages. I first saw the film at Sundance and it really blew me away. And it's remained my favorite film of the year so far. So I mean, congratulations on just making a very steamy, sexy, complicated movie. And thank you for taking the time to speak with me about it.
2: Thank you. I'm excited Good to be here. You said that when making
1: Passages, one of the things you most wanted to do was make a film that turned people on. And I think that you have succeeded uh, beautifully in doing that. I think looking at um, reviews on Letterboxd, you see a lot of people who are turned on by the film. It's certainly a very arousing film. And I want us to kind of ask you if you could tell me a little bit more about that specific mission, ma- wanting to make a movie at this time in your career that ignited that response in people.
2: Well, I, I think once you once you say the words turned on and, and I use the word horny, I wanted to make a horny film. It, it implies something that that is different to some extent than the movie I made because to me, turning people on also um, comes from making a film in which the actors reveal themselves in intimate ways. Mm. And that that isn't just sex. There's also um, a lot of other kind of moments of, of Of violence and tenderness, like the movie kind of shifts from one to the other that I think um turn me on in cinema i mean j- turns me on mm-hmm. in, right like and i and i'm I will talk a lot about a lot of people influence me, which doesn't mean I think I'm them, so I just <laughs> don't have that distinction i just but there are the the kind of the the movies that excite me um very organically become. Part of my own m- memory and imagination and family. Like I can't separate myself from from films that have 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 moved me and changed me, and I'm in constant conversation with them.
1: Looking at your sight and sound list, the the ten that you submitted for the sight and sound poll, and you said in there a similar thing about selecting these films because they are like family to you. And I think that that's something that really resonated with me um, as somebody who has often in my life retreated to film as this sort of safe harbor when I feel like there is not somewhere like to, to kind of ground me like that. like film is the thing that I can use as comfort. Have you found that for yourself like in times where maybe you're going through like difficult times in a relationship or dealing with you know some something difficult in your personal life, you retreated to film as kind of that that safe harbor
2: um two responses. one. <sighs> I thought no, I don't. I don't do that Um, because, in a way, what I think I find in film is the kind of intimacy that I also find in literature and books and novels. Like I just feel connected to myself in a very deep way that I find really just so uh, important. Like I need it. I need depth. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not I shy away. I mean, I'm sure I'm shallow as the next person, but I, (laughs) but I prefer. But I like to be stimulated in ways that have to do with with um, layers and complexity, and and sometimes just what what can be beautiful, and that could be a phrase or it could be an image, be um, light. Um, so I think in a way, I I turn to um, movies less as turning away, but then more in trying to like have something more fulfilling mm. in in as an experience. So in a way, it's like sex. It's like really, really deep yeah. for me.
1: So the sex scenes and passages have obviously gotten a lot of talk. You've talked recently about the fact that they were trying to rate it NC-17 and you pivoted to just wanting to release it uncensored, you know, not, not with a rating, which I think is a great move. I think that what you said about them, you know, giving it that rating and what A film like this that is specifically showing queer sex getting a rating like that versus there are so many films out there that show violent sexual assault that get rated R and, you know, nobody throws a stick at that. And I think it speaks something to why I find the sex scenes in passages so fulfilling as a viewer. And it is because they are not presented in this way that is supposed to be, you know, lurid or salacious. It is really driven from character. And you're telling a story with those sex scenes. We have like an arc within the scenes. We're understanding what the characters are going through in those scenes. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the, the approach to sex scenes as something that isn't, as you were saying, like being turned on isn't just from seeing two bodies connecting. It's something so much more than that.
2: It's interesting because I can talk about, Um, the strategy, but so much of sex scenes is what the actors do. Mm -hmm. Like I can't even take credit for really the things that happen on screen in, in, in the, there's three sex scenes in the film. I did consider each of them as, as, as a, uh, as kind of individual, like what makes this one different than this one? And, Mm -hmm. and, And what was I trying to get at in the moment? What, what, what feeling did I want for the film in that moment? But then how they actually play out is really just like the actors. Like they just, they write it, they perform it. They um, take the risks that make it possible. It's really extraordinary physical acting. Mm -hmm. That's what's interesting to me. And it's also not text-based. So they are long scenes but there's not like anything. The the it's two sentences on the page, which they turn into three minutes. Mm-hmm. But they're writing. They're actually like, uh, like they're 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 kind of narrating through their movements and also through their sounds, like real things that are not happening. You know? Yeah, So it's like really inventive the the sex scenes, which doesn't mean that things aren't happening physically. Like actors are always like, you know. They're touching each other. So there's bodies and there's there's stimulation, but there's also really this beautiful performance that happens in those scenes.
1: Yeah, I was curious because you you don't do rehearsal, right? Or you don't do much rehearsal with the actors?
2: No, I don't rehearse. I block the scenes, but I, I actively do not rehearse. that. I really don't want the actors to say the lines before they start um, doing so in front of the camera. So... There's a preservation of of the unique,
1: yeah. So does it feel like they're really discovering, like especially in scenes like that that are not at any scene really that isn't like dialogue focused, like scenes that are really about visual language, about the body language of characters. Are you getting that sense, like, or wanting to capture that spontaneity of them discovering the scene in the moment as well as the audience?
2: It's more important for dialogue. I mean, sure, you know, yeah. We're um, like. How we are listening to each other, looking at each other, what's going on in our eyes, like our movements they can't like you and I like those can't be repeated, and neither can they really be well repeated um in 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 the shooting of a movie i I have to say I have a strategy which is is not rehearsing, which is a very common in European cinema. A lot of people, like when I've talked with European actors, they're like, "Yeah, of course, I get it. Like, there's no, there's no hesitation because it's not, you know." I think American cinema was really rooted in a more theatrical tradition,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and in a way, European cin- cinema comes. I think if you look at it, you can, it's, it comes out of a to some extent of like cinema verite. It comes from an idea of like, like what happens on the location, what happens in the moment, what 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 world might be visited, while, I mean. You look at someone like Vivian Lee and you that who isn't was not American but to me she represents American cinema mm-hmm. like completely theatrical Elizabeth Taylor in the most beautiful way like the most extraordinarily beautiful way mm-hmm. Elizabeth Taylor particularly but it's a different tradition that I'm working in.
1: Yeah, you so we asked you to, to kind of give us four films that, you know, are four of your favorites. And you gave us the list. It was Taxi Zoom Clow, Dodsworth, The Innocent, and J2 ELL. And so, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I had seen two of them before. I hadn't seen two of them. And kind of watching, re-watching the ones that I had seen, watching the ones that I hadn't seen, you can certainly see... The through lines there with your work and with passages specifically, and talking about kind of the the old Hollywood tradition to Dodsworth, obviously a William Wyler film, does have sort of that sense of more theatrical performing and everything, but there is a lot of connection in passages too between Dodsworth and there. Could you talk a little bit about kind of Dodsworth specific, like influence, because you know the others are that European sensibility, but right. Dodsworth specifically is. Like a little bit of an outlier out of those four, but you can still sort of see how it's not.
2: Yeah, well, that's partially why I wanted to include it because I love American cinema, like, and and particularly in the last. Three years since the pandemic, with my kids and my husband and my kid's mom and her wife, we've watched like hundreds and hundreds of American movies that I never got to see before. So I suddenly know quite a bit about 30 cinema. Mm-hmm. I, I I now have seen every Hitchcock movie ever made. Like I, I, and I was never. I've I've watched more westerns than in three years than I have in the 54 years before. So like I have this incredible respect for American cinema. That that um that is one of the reasons I want to include a film like Dodsworth, because I don't believe that re- realism is is better mm. than the unreal. It's just what do you do with it? I mean, Fossbender being the perfect pulling those two together in in every way. I mean, it's uh to me, Doddsworth, as um the academic Janine Basinger, who who is a professor at Wesleyan and film scholar she said it's the greatest hollywood movie ever made about marriage hmm. and and i think she has something there because i think it's a film that's that's um really like broad in a certain way it's like all all shot it's a european tour of a couple who are um uh like at a point in their life they don't have to work and so they go off to europe to have a good life and experiences in it and it and then and then that introduces great problems between them because they don't know what they want anymore and they don't know how to be together. And, um, and it's also a love uh, triangle, which, which for me, it was, I, was, I was inspired by. Um, I think the thing about the film is it's just profoundly, simply human. Everyone is so at risk. Like the villain is the wife but my God, she suffers.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like,
2: so, And I think that's so beautiful about the film. Um, we specifically um, there, there's a character in passages who is the, the writer, new boyfriend of, of Ben Wishall's character. Mm-hmm. He's played by Erwan Falle, and, and he's a novelist and, And we called him Mary Astor. Like we just referred to him as Mary Astor because we were always like, well, of course Martin is going to end up with Mary Astor. (laughs) Like we just have to get him to the point because as you, if you watch Dodsworth, you'll see that he's got to end up with Mary Astor, but you don't think it's possible. It's not going to happen. But he does. He ends up with Mary (laughs) Astor. And I think it's it's kind of the great pleasure of the film um, is that the person who seems to be most dominating, who is the wife, with, with um, Ruth Chatterton is a beautiful performance. She loses everything. Yeah. Right? Like that's, that's the kind of downfall. Well, That's the morality of the film. And I have to say passages is, is a very moral film.
1: Yeah, I think Ruth Chatterton, not, not a name I was super familiar with before watching Dodsworth. She's not one of the ones that I think is like held up, you know, from the golden age of leading ladies, but she is sensational in Dodsworth. Like so good.
2: I love also how she, and I. I really don't know if it's the actress or or I don't know if she's acting or if they just took something. But she's always dressed just a little bit badly, mm-hmm. and she also walks not like a not like a high class lady. Like <laughs> she walks with like the earth, and she's just a. And I, and I think they do that so well. She literally moves her shoulders right and left, like she's <laughs> a little bit of a of like a cowgirl or something. And, and I think that's interesting because it's it's so subtle in the film, but it's really consistent. If you if you just watch the film for Ruth Chatterson's wardrobe, mm. you would understand the film really, really well. Yeah. There's
1: there's this scene in Dodsworth that so I watched it probably a week or so ago, and there's a scene that I keep coming back to where Dodsworth and her are parting ways and he's getting on the train and she says, Sam, try not to be too terribly lonely, won't you? And her saying that, like they're, they're you know, they've had the strife for so much of the movie and her still having that moment of saying like, try not to be too lonely, like her showing that she still kind of cares, like you're still holding that concern for somebody. It just hit me like a ton of bricks, like splitting with someone and still wanting the best for them. How does that scene, you know, strike you with that film?
2: Well, as you speak about it, not to be narcissistic, it makes it reminds me of Keep the Lights On, really. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's like it, uh, which is a film about a relationship that sort of won't ever seem to end. It's yeah. a horror. I, I call is a horror film. Uh, Passages is an action movie.
1: <laughs> That's perfect. I mean, Passages does have, I think it per- beautifully captures the therapeutic energy of taking a nighttime bike ride or just taking a powerful bike ride anywhere, the seeing Tomas on that bike is like, it makes me want to get up and go, go ride my bike around and just like feel kind of the endorphins, you know, going through my body or leaving my body when I'm, when I'm riding my bike.
2: I mean, right before, yeah, I'm just thinking now because we're in a letterbox. Um, I uh, I think of uh, the scene of Denis Lavant in, 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 uh, Movai Sang? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Movai mm-hmm. sang. And and the Carax film. And, you know, I will say, and again, I, don't shoot me for my influences, but, like, <laughs> I was looking at it right before we shot. Like, I had it on my phone, and I was like, come on. Like, let's go. Let's go. Yeah. We're here. And I think, I think for me, you know, I have such a relationship to my influences uh, and to the movies that have been important to me that could either be called, like, I have no original thought, or I'm like, <laughs> Or I'm like just in in bed with these images, and i'm 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 um yeah, so i for for me, in a way, Doddsworth is like this, it gives me hope that you can make a literary film in a way that isn't embarrassing, like it's literary because it's complex, contradictory, layered characters do things that you don't expect, but you understand why it's also rooted in understanding the character is one of the most essential elements of, of understanding characters, understanding money.
1: Yeah, I think that there's, in the, in the opening scenes of Doddsworth, when, so this guy is like an auto manufacturer, he's retiring, and we see his friends like not understanding like why he's retiring. Like he has so much money and they are constantly like, giving this sort of like capitalist feeling that you have to keep working until you die, that like you're only as good as when you're producing something. And I was wondering, as like a filmmaker, obviously you're your kind of art, your passion is producing something that has, like it's in an industry, there is like capitalist, you know, considerations for it. But you have really like your budgets, I think married life is maybe your highest budget, which is like not even 15 million. Like you have maintained the system of working very independently. And I was curious for you, like kind of what that sense of, making art that you love within a capitalist framework is like for you and wanting to remain true to yourself?
2: Complicated. Big question. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think that I'm in relationship and resistance to, to the industry in a way that's, that's um, like fundamental to how I I experienced life. Like, and and And, maybe very simply, like, do I get to make another movie, or do I not? And every mm-hmm. time I get to make another movie, and I think to sometimes this is for the better. I think it's my last. like mm. okay. so let's and I think I felt that particularly after the death that was so rel- present in during the pandemic, just like a time of death, I felt like, okay, I'm still alive, and i'm I'm getting to have this experience. So I felt very free. I'm also 57. You, there's a way in which you can kind of like you can see yeah you definitely can see the the shadows and you can you know you know it's not going to last forever and so you you have a kind of what the hell mentality which I think was really important for making passages. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the industry is like a, is like a is like a terrible resistant reactionary force that kills most of us creatively.
1: Yeah, you did this great interview with MUBI recently, this conversation for their Pride on Prejudice series. And one thing that struck out to me, that stuck out to me um, during that conversation was you talking about how most successful gay directors in America have gone on to make less gay films the more that they've become part of the system. Has it always been important for you to remain a filmmaker who can tell explicitly queer stories?
2: I do this work to because I uh, experience the pleasure of kind of diving in. It's sort of what I said about going to the movies. It's very deep for me, mm-hmm. and 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 as such, it's very personal for me. I've also had. Um, I, I can't really judge anyone's choices because because I have certain privileges in my life in terms of. My background, in terms of my family, in terms of things that have meant that I've gotten the opportunity to make certain choices that other people might not be able to. I've, I mean, I I can ask. I would, I'd be curious to ask some people who've made a lot of money in cinema why they choose to to make the films they do. Yeah, like what it what when when it's no longer about sustainability humanly, but it's about something else. But I think it's. I would be interested to hear those answers. Yeah. I, I I will say that I think it's 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 everywhere across the board. It's the MPAA that's creating resistance, but I'm telling you, it's these it's these these festivals too. Basically, if you make a, if you're a gay person and you make a straight film, you and you're at a certain level in your career, you 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 can you can continually be invited to, to these heterosexual love fests. Mm. And, 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 and if you're not, if you, if you make gay work, you you become more like, where's Gregoraki? It can. Yeah. Like what, what the fuck? (laughs) You know, like what, you're going to tell me that, that over Gregorakis, there's been like, there's been like 50 better films every year. (laughs)
1: Gregoraki is uh, one of my favorite filmmakers as well. And I was talking with him a few months ago um, because he's kind of having this moment where a lot of his movies are getting restorations and everything. But then it made me think like, we are, as a culture, as a film-loving culture, like, celebrating Greg Rocky right now, but, like, he's getting these restorations of a lot of movies he made in the 90s and everything. Like, his career, he's had to struggle to keep making the kinds of movies that he wants to be making, telling queer stories, like, hasn't been pushed up on that kind of pedestal. I think Smiley Face was his only one that was really more, like, in the studio system a little bit. Which was
2: great. Which Yeah, fantastic. so much fun. So much
1: fun. But, yeah, there is, like... This resistance, right, to queer stories being able to punctuate the mainstream and, like, especially like the the kind of like financial mainstream, where it's
2: it's not it's not like we're not discovering anything that's even. It's so true that it's almost not worth talking about. I (laughs) mean, it's a little like I feel this way about the like I'm having these conversations about the MPAA Mm -hmm. and like, which you know we got an NC-17 and and I'm a little like what the what the hell is the m c s why do we who are these people like it's to even imagine that this is like it's like us as artists versus these people who have no faces who mm-hmm. like came out of the Catholic Church, you know, really, the Hayes code was the Catholic Church. Let's remember like that's where it started, yeah, so you're a little like, why are we even on the same conversation like get out of my life,
1: yeah, I remember being being a teenager and like ratings of movies was something that I paid attention at like every single movie, right? Because if it wasn't, if it was rated R, I couldn't go see it or whatever without like a parent. And then, uh, like once I hit 17, 18, I don't know if I've ever thought about other than like doing my job and having to pay attention to certain things because of my job. I don't know if I've ever paid attention to what a movie is rated before I go to see it or like have any expectations based on well, a rating. I'll
2: tell you something that just sort of shows, like, cause we don't know what culture we live in. We can't see it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really hard to be visible. And then suddenly, in certain moments, like when I learned that Passages was given a 12 plus in Spain, <laughs> the world is different. We're not all the same. Like, our culture is different than your culture. For me, I, you know, I, my parents were divorced when I was like four, and my dad was a divorced single. I mean, he was a father having three kids when in the 70s. And I, and he would take us to, I remember he would, he had things to do, so he would take us to a movie. And if it was our rating, he would buy an extra ticket, and he would come in and he'd sit with us, and then he'd go out the back door. Mm-hmm. So I saw everything <laughs> as a kid. I mean, for better or worse, but I saw, I saw the conversation. I saw Patton. I saw Death Wish. I saw, uh, you know, Dog Day Afternoon. I was probably like nine when I saw Dog yeah. Day. Yeah. Feel that that's that's. I'm so grateful for that education.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wish that I had been introduced to those kind of movies earlier than I was, because it feels like such a rush when you do start to discover that stuff and you see so much of like what's possible. I wanted to thinking of you being introduced to stuff kind of earlier. The so the innocent the Visconti film that you picked as as one of these four. Um, yes. You've described it as being a super horny movie and it may be curious what, what was the first time you remember seeing a film and thinking like, wow, this is horny. Like for me, I remember seeing um Bertolucci's The Dreamers when I was like 15, oh. I think when it came out and it was like, oh, this is a different kind of movie that I'm used to seeing. I was curious what it was for you.
2: I it, I, it, I always come back to the experience of watching Greece mm. for the first time. That's a really sexy movie. Yeah. And and as a gay kid, it, I think it's just it was made by a gay man, it stars a gay man. It's like it's super gay.
1: Lots and of leather, lots of leather. Lots
2: of leather and tight clothes and bodies and and horny teenagers who are played by 30-year-olds and <laughs> and I remember I saw it with my friend Joseph and we we watched Grease in Memphis. At, at, at a shopping center, and we walked like a mile back to his house afterwards. And when we got home, we were just so sad that we hadn't stayed and watched Greece again. Mm, mm. Like we were just like because I think it was really like it, it was very exciting, um, and I think I mean I felt that it's interesting because like Taxi Zoom, Clo. I, I I think with the Innocent, because these are other films that are kind of in some very oppositional way to Dodsworth. Um, they're 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 films about. Uh, exposure, mm. right? Like the innocent has has the body of Laura Antonelli and the body of Giancarlo Giannini. They're both like beautiful objects. They're sculptures. Mm-hmm. And shot by the way. I mean, I don't know that I can't remember the DP, but the director is Visconti. So I think that there's a way in which you know he's an eye that I relate to mm. as a, as a gay person and and what he was interested in, and so. For me, there there was a, I was turned on by, I was as turned on by Laura Antonelli as I was by Giancarlo Giannini. And that was, that's sort of like the, the why passages exist. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Two, with Visconti, one thing that I love about him that I feel like I feel in passages specifically too, there's. Uh, He's a very emotional filmmaker. Like his films are very lush. They're very gorgeously detailed, like such like extravagant detail, but the emotions are really raw. They're very like from the core, like thinking about Rocco and his brothers, I think is, I don't know if there are many more films that feel as much like a punch in the gut to me as when I watched Rocco and his brothers. And I was curious, how kind of Visconti's approach to portraying emotion impacts you as a viewer and as a filmmaker.
2: Mm, That's interesting. Um, I remember seeing Rocco and his brothers at the Public Theater in New York when they used to have a film series, which was mm. which is gone. Um, I think, I think what Visconti encourages Fellini, Russian, I mean uh, Italian cinema, but also Fassbender is like is to go for broke emotionally, which doesn't have to mean histrionics, but like this the stakes. Need to be very high, and and I think I I always try to do that in my films, and sometimes you know maybe I succeed or sometimes I fail, but I always want the I want the moment that's recorded to be the most important maybe ever in the characters' lives.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that's really well said. And Giancarlo Giannini has this really phenomenal crying face. I think in The Innocent, there are these moments where he just gets like just the right amount of tears kind of welling up in his eyes, but they're not falling down. Yes, and I know exactly
2: what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> Seeing, seeing him in that, it made me think of there's So there's this one scene in passages that really floors me where Tomas and Martin are having sex in one room and Agat is lying pregnant with her eyes open on a bed in the next room. And it's absolutely brutal. And I was wondering if you could tell me about sort of the conception of that scene and how you wanted to, in that scene, utilize kind of the visual language of like what we're seeing to communicate the emotions, which I think felt very Visconti to me.
2: Mm. I will say that like that scene was a discovery in the location. It wasn't written quite as many back and forth between those two situations, the men in one room, the woman in the next, but somehow mm-hmm. being in this very small, um, old-ish uh country house in 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 France and and really the rooms being right next to each other that we shot in, I was like, whoa, that's what's happening here. And like, and I began to think of the whole sequence. I mean, I, I've used this before when we we're talking about keep the lights on, but really this sequence to me was like a horror movie where you were just wanting Adele to get out of the house. Yeah. And just like get out of there. These guys and I thought a lot about Fox and his friends actually in that scene, because I was like, "There's these dynamics that are about like the bad Tomas, but but Martin's no saint in this moment, <laughs> yeah." <laughs> and the two of them are these men who, like like in Fox and his friends, like they exploit the third. And Fox and his friends, and it's Fassbender is the Adele character, yeah. He's like a, a working class guy who makes a lot of money uh, in, a, in a lottery. And then these two rich guys kind of come in and exploit him. And that's sort of what I felt that these men are doing. And so I was interested in, in thinking about like m- male violence within gay culture without trying to talk about it. But that's what I was relating to in that scene, is that these men thought this woman was just disposable. They really don't care about her.
1: Yeah, that's Fassbender, I think, is so good, too, at exploration of character. Fox and His Friends is a perfect example of characters behaving badly without a sense of judgment from the filmmaker, which I think that Passages does sensationally. Tomas is like an absolute mess, like destroying everybody in his wake, but it never feels like we are being told by the film that he is a bad guy, right? Like it feels very judgment-free. And so, yeah, you see like Martin could be seen as a victim in some sense, a victim of Tomas, but he's just as complicit in some ways too. And I was curious about, so Fassbender especially, is he somebody who kind of gives you an influence on being able to portray characters with these moral you know, fallacies, but like their moral, moral failings, but without judging them, without condemning them necessarily, just kind of presenting, these are people, they're messy, they're complicated, take them for what you will.
2: I I guess what I would say, I I question that question. Okay. Because really what you're saying is, is do I make a good film or do I make a bad? Sure, film? sure.
1: <laughs> and I would say you make a good film, and that is. I
2: feel like the idea. I mean, as soon as you, as soon as you judge the character, you might as well do like I can't pay the rent. I must pay the rent. I can't pay <laughs> the rent. Like, like shallow.
1: Yeah, it's that theatricality—the mustache twirling villain. Kind that's of that's thing.
2: all it is, and and that's a, you know that's its own kind of theater. But it's 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 not deep. Let's put it yeah. that way. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think for me, what I try to be is deep, which does, I mean, that's, that's I want to set myself up for well, you're not. <laughs> cause I, you know, I'm as, I'm as, I'm as good as I might be. And I fail all the time. So that's but like, I, and it's funny cause I was in therapy today and I was just like, all I want is depth. Like I just, I just, you know, and I think it's because I'm it's, it's sort of back to this pandemic idea of mm-hmm. like, Somehow, if you it can achieve something deep, it's it's erotic. And it's also you're intimately connected to yourself. Mm. And sometimes that happens in the creation of art. And for me, often it happens in the experience of art and other people's art. Um, but to me, as soon as I see a work that that judges the where the where the artist judges the characters, I just think that they're bad. Yeah.
1: <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I that idea of Watching a film that makes you feel intimately connected to yourself, I think, is something that resonates a lot with me with Chantal Ackerman in general, with J2 ELL. That is, you know, a film following a woman kind of suffering a breakdown. And a lot of it, it's Chantal herself on screen, very, you know, exposed raw in every way, emotionally more than any else. And I feel like that's a film, her films make me feel more connected to myself as somebody who has struggled plenty with mental health with having, you know, these kind of issues, the idea of in that first j two e l is really broken into three sections. It's her by herself, then it's her with the truck driver. then it's her with her ex. And that first section, especially is like really just I've, you know, I feel like I've been there, right? Mm-hmm. Like eating out of a, spoonfuls of sugar out of a brown paper bag. And you drop the bag, and you still just pick it up and keep eating it. I wanted to ask you, kind of, how does is how that's a film that makes you feel kind of intimately connected to yourself while watching it?
2: Why are you not the film critic for the New York Times? Ask ask them. Ask them. Give I mean, me- I mean, just just like you're, you have a, you know, you have a personal understanding of the beauty that's possible. Uh so I appreciate that. And I'm I nice, appreciate
1: I'm, you saying that. That's that's I'm not, such a huge compliment. I'm
2: flattering you you know. Um, but I but I think also when you started talking about Chantal, I had a kind of emotional experience, which is like I got I got affected by the thought of that movie and the thought of her, um, not only but partially because of how she ended her life, but mm-hmm. but also the vulnerability, which is the gift of that movie, and it made me think of of um for us making passages, Sandrine Bonaire was like another figure that we like just kept experiencing. Mm-hmm. Like, like we were, she was like amused to, to, to all of us in a really gentle way. The vulnerability specifically of Anosa Moore, more. Yeah. And, and, and I think, so maybe it's the relationship between like 16 year old Sandrine And 22-year-old Chantal, like like the vulnerability of those women and the gift that that vulnerability is to to cinema seems to me very connected. Um, And it's also what is truly beautiful about about the art form.
1: Sandrine Bonaire, there was one summer, I think, I watched... Enosa some more because I saw that um, Luca Guadagnino talked about that being a really big influence on Call Me by Your Name, and so it made me curious to to see Enosa more. And I was blown away by her performance, and it made me want to dive into seeing more of her work. So I saw Vagabond right after the Anya Varda film, which I know that you are you know a huge lover of that as well. She she is just I mean a force of nature. Like you see her in a film, and it's like this is what this is what acting. This is uh, beyond acting. Like this is what real life is this is somebody who understands every emotion this character is going through
2: but to me she's like Falconetti, mm-hmm. uh, and and she's like Greta Garbo like she's really uh, a unique and and I don't have that I don't have the feeling about Garbo that I do about and Benair at all I mean nothing against Garbo <laughs> <laughs> it's rest going out in-
1: there Greta Garbo getting slammed on the letterbox
2: podcast <laughs> rest in peace But I I mean that like there's just these singular I I think of Elizabeth Taylor to Mm -hmm. be honest like there's certain singular performances and particularly by women which um, transcend time and space and and also seem to be a record of time like Sandrine was 16 when she made Nosimir yeah unreal she was 18 when she made uh, Vagabond and and so. Also, what the film's doing are preserving the beauty of youth. Like if you look at my list of, of, of sight and sound, a lot of them are about that, that trepidation that occurs between like 14 and 21.
1: Yeah, that actually really, I had the list in front of me. The Splendor in the Grass was one that, that really stood out for me. The, the Ilya Kazan film. And that is, that's exactly what that is right? Natalie Wood, Warren Beatty, like that is exactly what that is. And that's, that's a film that I think, especially like the age that I saw that I was maybe a late teen and I felt like I didn't realize that films from that era, like at that time I didn't realize that films from that era could be so in touch with what it is actually like to be that age and like discovering the, um, the bliss and the fear of discovering your sexuality, like all of the complicated emotions that come with that.
2: I mean, we're talking now about my favorite films ever made. <laughs> it's 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 powerful to think what they've meant to us. Yeah. Right? Like, um, and I think Natalie Wood in that movie and the last the the scene in the movie where Natalie goes to visit um Warren Beatty in his new home. Yeah. Office. Arm, I mean, like, you know, it's just, it's, it's pure poetry in, in a way that's, um, yeah, really breathtaking. I think, I think what it is though, and I think this is where maybe let's bring it back to passages is that mm-hmm. what I think film can do is capture the ineffable and, 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 and the ways and the ways in which you, you know, and don't know yourself that occur in the moment that is so powerful when when actors are just reaching adulthood. Like, my kids are 11, and very soon they won't play anymore. Mm. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a terrifying
2: thought. That's going to be gone. And I think in a way, I mean, Balthazar, the opening of Oazard Balthazar mm-hmm. is a record of that moment. Like, And, and I think that's all, to me, this this uh, profound beauty that, that and, and I I guess I, you say like, I didn't know that movies could be like that, but uh, that the movies of the older times could be like that. Like, can movies of the present time be like that? That's really the question.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, honestly, that's a very interesting thought that like there was a certain age where I was seeing older, like discovering older movies and discovering they could be a way. And now I'm at an age where, I like I like you um, the majority of stuff coming out today. I like I can feel kind of nothing watching like a, a you know lion's share of what's coming out today. And then I watch something a favorite or something I've never seen before, like a like a Dodsworth, like a Taxi Zoom Clo, which I had never seen before. Watching it and thinking like, how is there not more stuff like like how can you see a movie like that and not want to be inspired by it? Do something in that same realm, which I guess, you know, that's a good segue for us to talk a little bit about Taxi Zoom Club, which I had genuinely never heard of before you put it on this list. And I'm really grateful that you did. It was tough to find, but it was a really wonderful discovery. Um, could you just talk a little bit about maybe the first time that you saw that film and your discovery of it?
2: Yeah, also just, just as a aside, there was a review the the, the, the new Philippe Gorel film, which was in Berlin. Um, and it's called like the Golden Chariot or something like that. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. What, um, I, I highly recommend it when it comes out. Don't miss it. And there was a review of the film by, I don't know, Variety or something like that. And and basically they were like, this is a movie that is an elegy to a kind of cinema that is 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 is, le- is gone and is about to go. And this is like the last movie that's made made. It. And all I kept thinking, it's kind of in the verse in reverse of what we were talking about before is. You mean a good movie? Yeah, like, you know, <laughs> good movies because it's a movie about life and relationships and intimacy and family. It's a huge movie, yeah. To me, it's like it's like the Godfather. It's like, it, but not because of its structure, but because of its complexity and its depth. And I just like you mean. So I don't know, but I won't get nostalgic. <laughs> and I will say, Taxi Zim I only saw probably like eight years ago. I did not see it. came out in eighty one. I was too young. Like it it, it 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 sort of hit the radar in eighty one and I didn't really see these kind of films until like eighty four when I started discovering more like you can understand like Greece was my introduction to gay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, it took a
1: little while. It
2: took a little while to get to Fastbender kind of, and <laughs> Exactly. It wasn't like day one. So I and I think for, for me when I discovered it. And I just saw it again because I picked it um, for a double feature at the American Cinematheque in in London. I mean, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I picked Dodsworth. Dodsworth, yeah, and, I saw that. Wadsworth and Taxi Zoom Clo together because they're they're both love triangles in their own way. I think the love triangle in Taxi Zoom Clo is the the man, his boyfriend, and all other men. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: that's really well put.
2: <laughs> right, but it's a triangle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's,
1: I mean, he's figuring it out. I think there's also like, you know, there's, speaking of it, thinking of it being such a hard movie to find, I know that you are on the advisory group for Missing Movies, which is an organization that I wrote a story for Letterboxd about earlier this year, um, who are aiming to raise awareness for how movies can kind of disappear from availability. They're trying to rescue them with like the means that they can. And even some of your films, like The Delta and 40 Shades of Blue are like not available like streaming or anything and I'm
2: working on it. I'm working on it.
1: So I wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit about kind of the, the sort of like gatekeeping around accessibility of films, but especially I think that the impact that it has on like queer films and films from other marginalized groups more like there are movies like looking for Mr. Goodbar or something that are, you know, movies that are not made by marginalized folks, but are
2: Norma Rae. You yeah. can't find Lemorae an anywhere. Which is which, yeah,
1: that, that feels a little bit like some suppression going on with what's going on right now. But like yeah. for a movie like Taxi Zoom Clo, I, I had never heard of it because it's not available, right? There was no reason for me to hear it because it wasn't on some streaming thing where I could have found it. Well, movies gonna
2: pick it up because nice. I very excited. I've encouraged them to do so. So it, it will hopefully be more available. And um you know, I, I guess it's it's it is and the, the interesting thing about this sight and sound kind of list mm-hmm. is what we're really asking people are are what are the alternate canons? Yeah. And and I think um the Taxi Zoom Clo is a film that um is 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 to me canonical at mm-hmm. this point as a as a film. Goer, but also as a queer man who who cares about cinema, like both those things. Like it's both in terms of the the because it's just a really amazing movie, and then it's also an amazing queer movie. And um, so I think it's like I mean, in some ways you could say maybe it's like the old days, like the night, like there's a transmission of culture that has to happen person to person. Like I'm telling you about something, and then you're gonna watch it, and you're gonna tell somebody about it. Yeah, and 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 of course that's because there's this we're we're marginalized in our sexuality we're not marginalized in other ways but we are marginalized in our sexuality and i think we have to create alternative cultures and so that's why i started a film series called queer art film and ran it for 12 years and and like and and i and but i think it's a struggle yeah it's a struggle and and you're doing your part by having these kind of conversations where we talk about these films as if you know, they are our Barbie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Taxi
1: Zoom Clo is my Barbie. That's what I'm putting out there in the world. Yeah. I wanted to ask too, like there's, so Taxi Zoom Clo, a, a reason why I wish that I had seen it younger. There is a, a prostate exam scene in it, which I found really effective. It is it's played a little bit, like it's very straightforward. It's maybe played a little bit with like a wink. There's like a nurse kind of having reactions to it, which is very amusing, but- She's
2: so great. She's, she's so good. She's fantastic.
1: And yeah. I wish that, so I'm somebody who's had stomach issues my entire life. I had to get a prostate exam for the first time when I was 15 years old. And that was, oh, yeah. as somebody who had no idea what that was, that was terrifying for me, like in that room, like not even understanding what was happening. And so like Taxi Zoom Clo. Even having that in a movie, I feel like would have been so revelatory for me to see as a younger person to just understand more of like what the experience of the world is. It also teaches people about getting tested for SCDs and SCIs, which is really important. And so I guess I wanted to ask you kind of just what you make of that scene specifically and how that scene impacts you.
2: Well, you know, it sort of reminds me in some ways it's like a, it's like, it's, it's a confrontation with the audience it is definitely he's stopping the film and having a prostate exam. Yeah. And we are going to be uh the ca- the camera's gonna be witness in the most intimate way. And I think I, I I like how films sometimes um really and I think passages in a certain way the sex scene between Martin and Tomas and passages serves in that function, which is to say it's um confrontational. In in passages, it's it's about the length of the shot, which yeah. is just doesn't and and I think that's very much tied up to to what I experienced watching less Taxi Zoom club more watching Je 2 et L, the, mm. the is it Chantal when Chantal finally the final ends,
1: scene yeah
2: the final scene you're just like just and I think sometimes scenes that are that ask for your your attention. For a longer period of time than you expect, about something that most people don't pay attention to become like the things that you hold in your head. Also, I think I just was talking to another journalist here who was talking about keep the lights on and love is strange. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and was saying, like, for him, who's probably, he's probably in his early 30s, like, he'd never seen those images that looked like his own life in a movie. Like I don't know what people are seeing, but I think I think that it's great that you see something that says you're not alone and that your experience is common. And I think that might be about a prostate exam or it could just be about like gay sex.
1: Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Even just like gay people, I remember I saw Love is Strange when I was like 25, I think when it came out and even just seeing a adult you know, healthy, like queer couple like that, just living their lives. It felt like something, like I was connecting with it in a way, especially like at the time in my life where I saw it, where that was kind of when I was stepping out more into my sexuality and like dating men for the first time. And so like, it felt like, Oh, I have a recognition with this. And like, this is very important to me for just seeing that, seeing that depicted period was really significant.
2: Well, I, me. I think you, you look to, to these films, um, which I, I'm glad to hear, and I think it's encouragement to make them. But I look to the films we've been talking about today. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like I look, I like, I like need to see Chantal Ackerman's film in order to be told I have permission to 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 both create the images that I'm creating and also to feel the certain feelings that seem to me so my own. Mm. And I, you know, I'm reading Trollope now, uh, (laughs) six six volume, and it's hilarious and brilliant and funny. And if you like that kind of, if you like 19th century novels, I highly recommend the Barchester Chronicles. But, but the reason is because it's so it's so enjoyable. But also, I so often see little things that I'm like. I think I'm the only person reading this book in the whole world. And I just (laughs) had that experience that just spoke to exactly something that I just noticed myself in my own life. Wow. And that's an amazing, that's an amazing thing for art to be able to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's Jetsu ELL definitely has that feeling for me where like I'm watching it. I almost feel like nothing else exists in the world when, when I'm watching that movie, I'm just in it with her experiencing those moments.
2: It's a it's a it's a it's a beautiful and painful gift.
1: I kind of wanted to go back a little bit to the talk about actors who are so individualistic that they you know nobody else really captures what they're capturing, and I wanted to use that to talk a little bit about Franz Rogowski, who I think is probably the greatest actor of his generation. And when I heard that you and him were working on something together, like I you know immediately to the top of my watch list, and then I found out that you. The film was kind of inspired by him, and it was like you wrote it for him. And so, I wanted to kind of ask you one, like, how, how that inspiration came about with him, but also to like how did he respond to this very messy, chaotic, destructive character being something that you said, "Hey, I wrote this character for you," and yeah. made me think of you. Uh,
2: you know, I have done this often in my life, written um, and 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 luckily for the last ten years, fifteen years, I've been working with a great co writer, Mauricio Zacharias. And um, but often I bring an idea, and sometimes it's based on, a, uh, on an experience I've had with an actor in a movie theater. Mm-hmm. So uh, Paulina Garcia, uh, I saw in Gloria, and then I then we wrote Little Men for her. Yeah, she's so good uh, in that too. Yeah, she's and and you know sometimes what happens is that, that the, the actor doesn't end up doing the movie. And That's actually okay because they were literally inspiration. Yeah, and the movie then exists, and it can become someone else and it has before. I wrote Forty Shades of Blue for for Julianne Moore, and then we planned to do it together, and then she didn't do it, and 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 then I made the movie, and, it, yeah. and but she, she she left a trace. Yeah. in the movie, and I so I I'm I'm fine with that. So Franz, I saw in Mikael Hanukkah's Happy End. Mm-hmm. Um, and for any listener who hasn't seen the movie, I highly recommend it. But if you don't have time to watch the whole movie, just go to YouTube and say, Franz Rogowski, Chandelier, Sia. <laughs> uh, because he does a karaoke performance of, of the song by Sia called Chandelier. And it's a brilliant moment of cinema. And, and he's like a force. So I, I, I got excited. And, and, but I have different people like that in my mind. And then sometimes the story runs into that memory. Mm. So like, it wasn't like, I'm going to write a film for Franz Rogowski no matter what. It was like, I have this idea. That's the Franz Rogowski film. And, and then when I, I sent it to him, I did not tell him that it was written for him <laughs> until we had a, until we'd already finished a conversation and he, and he was interested because it doesn't, it, it's too burdensome. It would be like it's too too much of a fan letter.
1: What if he reads it and is like, I, "Well, I don't feel interested in this," and then like it becomes awkward. <laughs>
2: romantically, nobody needs to know that either. Like, right? It's just yeah. Not. It's not good. It's not a good first way to start. So, so we only he only knew that after after he wanted to do the movie, and then I then I could tell him that.
1: He's, I mean, he's tremendous in it. So I mean, so are Ben and Adele. Like the the cast. Your work with your actors is always absolutely sensational. I think for folks who have seen your work, I don't think anyone would be surprised to hear that like Fassbender and Ackerman are huge inspirations for you, but I'd love to know, and it's okay if you don't have an answer to this, but I'd love to know kind of what's a film that you absolutely adore, that you think maybe people would be surprised to know that you love. Like I think, so like Terrence Malick famously is obsessed with Zoolander or Joachim Trier has a really huge passion for the Julia Roberts movie Eat, Pray, Love. And so I was wondering your, all of these westerns that you watch, because westerns maybe not a, a, a genre that I would immediately think of when thinking of your work. What's what would be your favorite western?
2: Well, I would watch um, all the Anthony Mann films with James Stewart, mm-hmm. and yeah. just just go down the list, and yeah. and and I think you would find you yourself thinking about so many things about America and being a man and growing old. Mm. and um, being part of a family and being alone um, they're, they're purely emotional films um, that just always surprise me like, yeah. like I can't believe again I can't believe the depth I just witnessed and experienced
1: Thanks so much for listening to The Letterboxd Show. My guest today was Ira Sachs, whose new film Passages is playing in theaters and territories worldwide, courtesy of MUBI. Thanks to our crew, producer Brian Formo, booker Sophie Shin, Sam for the episode art, my old pal Slim for editing out all my flubs, and most of all, to you for listening. If you have the time, consider leaving us a review as it helps spread the word about the show and we'd love if you sent us an email at podcast@letterbox.com to let us know what you think about the Letterbox show, what you're vibing with and what you'd love to hear from us in the future. The Letterbox show is as always a tape deck production. Near the end.
2: This 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 is a tape deck podcast.